Turn with me to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 18. Uh, we are continuing in our series from the life of David. Uh, as we turn the corner into the new year, we've started a new preaching series, and uh, it's going to occupy our attention for the winter and spring. The life of David is so large and so full, uh, we're excited to really mine all the different things that come out of the life of David. <clears throat> so this is our third message in the series, and um, in chapter 18, I'm just going to start us out here with a couple verses, and uh, I'm going to put the slide up there for us. <clears throat> Scripture says, it came about when David had finished speaking to Saul, as in King Saul, that Jonathan committed himself to David. Jonathan was King Saul's oldest son. And Jonathan loved David as himself. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. So the title of my message this morning is The Christ-like Ministry of Jonathan. And I'll be sharing from these next three chapters, 18, 19, and 20. And we're going to look at one of the most famous friendships in the Bible that of the friendship between Jonathan and David. So as I dive in here, let me commit our time to the Lord in prayer. Again, Jesus, we thank you that you have specifically chosen certain stories to put into the Bible, that as we study them, as we meditate on them, Lord, that we can learn deeply from you in your ways. And Lord, this morning I pray that you would be speaking to our hearts through your word and through your spirit. Use me as your servant this morning. Lord, we treasure your word. We bow our hearts before you during this time of teaching now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we've learned so far um, from the life of David, David is given this great call to be a king at a young age. Samuel, the mighty prophet in whom no words fell to the ground, anointed David to be the next king in a home ceremony in front of his seven brothers. Now, can you imagine the feeling that David had as the youngest and at such a young age to have such a big call? One day he would be king, and what would that be like? What kind of power would he have? Now, he was not sent to an elite school or a finishing school to be trained for this role, yet God chose him from the humble fields of Bethlehem. What a future David had in store, and what an upgrade from his current status. You'd think his life was now paved with gold. His life was set, and it would be smooth sailing from here on in. But that was far from what would happen. In fact, after the word was given by the prophet Samuel, David's life took a massive turn for the worse. Not unlike the word that God gave to Joseph. When the Lord showed Joseph that he would be a prince over his parents and brothers, things went from excitement to bad to worse. Joseph's circumstances radically changed after the prophecy came to him in the form of a dream. And he was nearly killed by his brothers out of hatred. He was sold into slavery in Egypt. And then he was thrown in prison after being falsely accused of having sexually assaulted the wife of one of the top government officials. It seemed as if Joseph's life was going in the opposite direction of the word given to him. And so it was with David after he received his prophetic word. Now, David had no natural pathway to the throne. Yet because of his ability to play the harp with skill, God opened the door for him to minister to King Saul, who was battling an evil spirit that would terrorize him. 
The scripture says that because of Saul's disobedience, the spirit of the Lord lifted from him, and instead an evil spirit came to torment Saul. And the only way that he could be soothed and the only way that he could be comforted was for music to be played under the anointing of the spirit. Enter David, who was skilled in the harp and called into the king's courts to play that music. And this was David's first introduction to the royal courts through his musicianship, but not as part of succession planning. Then after David killed Goliath and gained national prominence through his incredible victory, Saul permanently installed David as part of his administration. David would not just be in the music section, he would now be part of the military as a commander over a thousand troops. But David's conquest of Goliath was so inspiring that the women of the land didn't say David conquered his thousands, he conquered his ten thousands, as opposed to Saul, who only conquered or slain his thousands. And that was the moment that things went from trending in the right direction for David to terrible. Because at that moment, Saul became deeply jealous and deeply suspicious of David and saw him as a threat to his kingdom. What then unfolds in the next three chapters is what no young man should ever experience. As King Saul tried repeatedly to kill David. David would later say to his best friend, there's hardly a step between me and death. Can you imagine a young man growing up with this kind of danger and this kind of pressure and stress that someone was after him all the time to take his life? The first attempt on his life was when Saul was raving in his house due to the evil spirit, and he threw his spear at David as he was playing the harp. This happened not once, but twice. And in both cases, David was able to dodge the spear. Having failed in killing David by his own hand, King Saul then resorts to a more cunning plan. He promises his older daughter, Merab, in marriage to David. But in exchange for her, David had to secure the foreskins of 100 Philistines as a dowry for her. Now recall that David came from a poor family. He didn't have the wealth or riches to pay a dowry. So Saul required a dowry from the battlefield. Saul's plan, however, was not some grand gesture, some heart-filled gesture to bring David into the family as a son-in-law. Saul was merely using his daughter as a pawn, as a cover to send David into battle against the Philistines so that David would end up being killed or would die trying to get the hundred foreskins. In actuality, Saul would give Merib to another man. So the promise was merely a ruse. This was a dark and Machiavellian-type scheme to kill David. But instead of getting killed, David went and brought back 200 foreskins to the king, double what the king had asked for. And Saul was crestfallen to see what had happened. Rather than being killed, he actually prospered double. And the Bible says that king, Saul was even more afraid of David after this. But Saul would persist in his murderous intentions. His third attempt was to recruit then his son Jonathan. And on this occasion, Saul was outright commanded his son and his servants to kill David. No pretense, no cover, pure, explicit instructions. 
kill David. In effect, Saul was wanting to use Jonathan's close relationship with David to get close to him so David could be murdered. But Jonathan was able to change his dad's mind when he reminded the king of the good that David had done, when he risked his own life to defeat Goliath and bring about a breakthrough for Israel. Despite this decision to leave David alone, Saul reverts back and attempts to kill David again using his own spear. This was now Saul's third attempt by his own hand. Again, all these verses are given to us in chapters 18 and 19. But like the first and second time, David was able to evade Saul's javelin throws. Finally, Saul sends troops to watch David at his house in order to put him to death in the morning, as it says in chapter 19, verse 11. But David's wife, not Merab, who was given away to someone else, but another daughter called Michael. She was David's consolation prize. And David was given, and Michael was given to David, and she lowered David through a window in the middle of the night so that he could escape the troops that were watching and surveilling his home. Now, when all through these chapters, Saul tried to kill David six times. And remember, David's a young man. What person should have to experience this kind of trauma? It's hard to imagine how David lived through these unrelenting attempts on his life, living in fear with the exhaustion and emotional toll of being in constant danger. So this is what it's like to get a prophecy that you're going to be king. It's in the midst of this, however, that we read of the friendship between Jonathan and David and how Jonathan was David's saving grace, literally in the sense that Jonathan was able to protect and save David's life, but also in the emotional sense. Jonathan was the one constant that comforted, encouraged, and believed in David. All hell might have been unleashed against David, but Jonathan was his one comfort. And this is where we see Jonathan's Christ-like ministry at work. So let's trace how this happens. As we read in the opening verses of chapter 18, the Bible says that from the first time that Jonathan saw David, his soul was knit to him. They immediately had this kindred connection. You know how sometimes when you meet people, you just have this connection. It's just like invisible, but it's so real. And Jonathan and David had that kind of connection. And it was deep, and it was powerful, and it was instant. And the Bible says that Jonathan soon made a covenant with David because he loved David as himself. Now, to make a covenant, this is the highest level of friendship that you could have. And how did this transpire so fast? Why did it happen? How did Jonathan have such a kindred connection to this young shepherd boy? Well, I believe the answer lies in chapter 14. Turns out that besides David, there was one other person in Saul's army that had the valor to go up against the Philistines. And it was Saul's own son, Jonathan. Early on in Saul's reign, when Israel had its first clashes with the Philistines, it was Jonathan, his son, that led the attack. Like David, Jonathan was not afraid to lead the charge to be the tip of the spear. When you read the account in chapter 14, and Jonathan says to his armor bearer, we need to go and attack this Philistine garrison. And he sets this sort of condition before the Lord. He asks him for a sign. He says, okay, we're going to go up to this hill, 
We're going to hide ourselves. And the armor bearer says, yeah, go do everything that's in your heart, Jonathan. So they go hide on this hill, and here's the sign that they give to God. They said, we're going to show ourselves at the top of the hill, make ourselves very visible. And when the Philistines see us, if they say to us, we're coming over to you, then we'll just stand our place and wait for them to come to us. But if they say to us, come over to us, then that's our sign we're supposed to go into battle against them. Well, I mean, what kind of conditions is that? What enemy is going to say, hey, we're coming over to get you? No, rather, come over here because this is where our strength is. So Jonathan was primed to go into battle. He wanted to take on the enemy. He wanted to strike first and not wait to react. And in this regard, he was just like David because the Bible says that David ran into the battle against Goliath. Jonathan was fearless and full of courage. As a result, if you read this story again, and I encourage you in your devotions to be reading First and Second Samuel because they're filled with so many tremendous stories. And so it says here that Jonathan, as he went in against his garrison, he killed 20 men in half a furrow in an acre of land. Chapter 14, verse 14. In other words, we're talking about defeating 20 men in hand-to-hand combat in close quarters of about half an acre. Now, how does one man take on 20 and win? Well, with a lot of speed and guts and skill. Now, here's the crazy thing. David may have slayed his giant, but Jonathan triggered an earthquake. So 14 and 15 of chapter 14 says, Now that the first, now that first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer inflicted was about 20 men within about half a furrow in an acre of land. Verse 15, And there was a trembling in the camp, in the field, and among the people. Even the garrison and the raiders trembled, and the earth quaked, so that it became a great trembling. You talk about God backing up his servant. You talk about God and saying, yes, this is my will. The Lord literally shook the ground and created an earthquake. And it was because of Jonathan's fearlessness and valor. We often so hear about David's conquest over the giant, but Jonathan was not to be outdone because his victory brought about a quake. Do you see now why Jonathan and David's souls were knit instantly. They were the only two men in the land that had that elite spirit to defeat the enemy against all odds. They instantly understood each other, the emotional, mental, and physical fortitude required to win. It would be like Sidney Crosby and Wayne Gretzky understanding each other in a way that no one else can. It's maybe not a perfect analogy, but it gives you a sense of how the connection between Jonathan and David came about. This, then, is where Jonathan becomes the unsung hero of their relationship. As their souls were knit, Jonathan sensed something about the larger picture of what God was doing. He senses in David not just someone with the same bravery as he had, but David's prophetic call and anointing. And when we talk about the fame of David and Jonathan, it's always David that gets the spotlight, but it was Jonathan that was the foundation of the relationship. He was the Christ-like one in this story. So let's look at how this played out. First point. As a king's son, 
Jonathan gave up his privilege to be the king. This is one of the first mind-blowing things that we see. Saul should not have felt threatened by David. He was already king. He was already in place. He was having his turn. It should have been Jonathan, the heir apparent, that felt threatened. His right to rule as the king's oldest son was in jeopardy. And yet, what do we see? Jonathan, the son, gave up his kingship to serve David. Did Jesus not put off his kingship as the only son to come to earth? We have these verses from the New Testament that underscore what Jesus did. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. He came, Jesus, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7 underscores this and tells us that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He gave, gave up his sonship and his kingship by taking the form of a bondservant and was born in the likeness of men. Just as Jesus gave up his kingship to help us, so Jonathan gave up his kingship to help David. Jonathan's humility was so uncommon and yet so beautiful and moving. And it was a foretelling of Jesus' ministry that was to come. Second point. <clears throat> Jonathan initiated the covenant with David. David did not initiate it with Jonathan. Jonathan was in a place of power and position and riches. David was poor and lightly esteemed. This is what David said of himself in 1823, chapter 18, verse 23, not the year 1823. It should have been David honoring Jonathan, but instead it was Jonathan that initiated the relationship and the covenant. David as the poor man, as as the commoner should have been honoring Jonathan, but yet it was Jonathan that came and said, you know what, we need to have this relationship. We need to have this friendship. We need to have, yes, this covenant. And in the same way, Jesus comes to us. He initiates. He instituted the new covenant and invites us to dine with him. And this is what 1 John says to us. We love because he first loved us. It should be us that runs towards God, but instead, God runs towards us. Jonathan was the first mover in this story, and then David responded in kind. A third thing that we see with regard to Jonathan's Christ-like ministry, Jonathan stripped himself of everything and gave it to David. 18.4, it says that Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his military gear, including his sword, his bow, and his belt. This is one of the key things in a covenant transaction, in a covenant meal or a covenant ceremony. You gave to the person that you loved all the things that you identified that represented who you were. Pastor A.B. Simpson well-known pastor, founder of the Christian Missionary Alliance, 
said of this moment. In his pledge of his affection to David, Jonathan stripped himself of his princely robe and even of his personal and inner garments, bearing, no doubt, the monogram of his royal name. And even the very sword, which was to a warrior the badge of his highest honor, and his bow in his very girdle, which was the most sacred article of personal apparel in an oriental wardrobe. For it was his purse and the repository of all his secrets and sacred treasures. All these Jonathan gave to David as the expression of his unreserved oneness with the friend of his inmost heart. What a beautiful description. And it shows to us that Jonathan held nothing back. Everything that represented who he was, he transferred it to David. Isn't this what Christ did for us? As we preached in our last series from the book of Ephesians, the book opens, and this was actually the title of our whole series. Blessed. We are blessed. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Didn't hold anything back. Stripped himself of everything to give it to us. He has given us this spiritual blessing, every one of them in heavenly places. In him we have redemption, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. Jonathan lavished on David the most priceless things in his life. Jesus stripped himself of everything and gave it to us. We are now heirs with God. In other words, Jesus' birthright becomes ours. We get to be seated with God in heavenly places. This is truly amazing. If I were literally to give up my birthright as the son of my dad and give it to someone else, I'm giving away my heritage and all the things that have been accumulated for me, but I give it to someone else. That's a big deal. You can't give more of yourself than that. Then we have this fourth aspect. Jonathan was David's constant safety. Again, I encourage you to read chapter 20 this week in your devotions. Time and time again, Jonathan shielded David from his father's wrath, giving him advance notice if the king was going to do something against him, and then sending David signals by arrow if a plan to kill him was in play. Is this not like Jesus? Protecting us from the devil's plan, sending us messengers like arrows through his word and prophecy, leading us out of danger and keeping us safe. Just like David could run to Jonathan, so we can run to Jesus. In Proverbs 18 and Psalm 145, tell us this, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. In Jonathan, David had a strong tower in the midst of all the chaos and all the difficulty. There was one person he could go to. There was one tower he could run and hide in, and that was Jonathan. And Jonathan never failed him. Every time David went to him, Jonathan was there. Jesus is that strong tower for you and me. In the same way that David went through hell, and Jonathan was there to help him through it, so Jesus helps us through all the difficulties, even hell, if we go through it. Psalm 145, Scripture says, The Lord supports all who fall and raises up 
those who are bowed down. The Lord is near to all who call on Him, to all who call on Him in truth. Have you ever been at a place where you've been stressed out, you're anxious, and, and you have to somehow get rid of that anxiety, and you watch TV, or you eat food, or you say, I'm going to go for a run, or I'm going to... But the scripture says right here that, that God is our instant help, that we need to call upon Him. Why is it that our natural default, why is it our first reaction is to do something other than call upon God? And yet God has said, I've given you a hotline. You can pick up the phone anytime. You can just speak from your heart. And the moment you call upon me, I am right there for you. And that's the promise of Psalm 145, that the Lord is near to all of us that feel that brokenness, that feel that inability to lift our heads, that feel that inability to cope with all that's going around us. I ask you, dear Christian, to test God, to see if he will, in fact, be near to you, if he will not answer you, if he will not be close to your distress. The reason why David gave us so much from the book of Psalms and in his diary is because he tested God and found him to be true. So these things that he wrote were conceptual. They weren't abstract. They were born of his own life. And we're just getting into the nitty-gritty details of, D of David's life. There is so much that he went through to prove the character of God, to prove the faithfulness of God. And so God wants us to have the same heart of David. That's why we're looking into this very biography, is that David teaches us how close and how present God can be in the midst of our trouble. We're going through COVID. We're going through economic shaking. We're going through political shaking. We're losing our jobs. We're in danger of our health. Can God help us in our hour of trouble? You bet he can. And over and over again, God has proved himself. So raise up your faith. Lift up your faith. Turn your eyes. Turn your heart. Turn the thoughts of your mind to the truths of the Bible because that is your strong tower. David was a young man and he was beginning to learn the skills that would serve him so well as a king. And all the battles he would go through and all the internal struggles of the kingdom, he learned early on, I can call on the name of the Lord. And who was it that demonstrated that to David? It was Jonathan. Jonathan had a Christ-like spirit, Christ-like ministry that showed David the way. In the New Testament, we have this picture of Peter walking out onto the water, having that heart to do what God wanted him to do. And how many of you are like that? Yeah, God, I do want to do what you want me to do. And so you step out of the boat and you walk on the water and you have those initial steps of success in that initial exhilaration, but all of a sudden things go sideways and your face starts stinking and you start drowning in the water. It's like Joseph receiving that word, I'm going to be a prince. God is going to give me such position and power, I'm even going to be over my parents and my brothers. It's like David hearing, I'm going to be king. You step out of the boat and you're excited, and all of a sudden, you start sinking. But what did Jesus do? Scripture tells us he reached down, grabbed Peter, didn't condemn him, didn't say, what's wrong with you? Didn't I tell you we would make it? None of that. He was there to rescue him. He was there to be that strong arm. We have to encourage ourselves in the Lord. Community is 
one of the most beautiful things that God has given to us. When we were in eternity with the Father and all the saints, it will be a community like none other. It's going to be so joyful. No backstabbing, no bickering, no gossip, no misunderstanding. We'll have perfect communication. We can talk to our wives. We can talk to our friends. We can talk to anyone. It's going to be perfect understanding. The community and fellowship is going to be awesome. But while we're on this side of earth, there's going to be times where we have to hunker down and be able to get with God and get encouraged in God. Later on, we're going to read stories of how David had to encourage himself in the Lord. We too have to be strong and to have the skills and say, okay, Lord, I'm coming to you. A fifth thing that we see here about Jonathan is that in the end, he gave up his life for David. Chapter 20, verse 13, as David and Jonathan are talking about all the attempts on his life, Jonathan shields David, and he says, David, if it pleases my father to even harm you, even if he wants to continue to kill you, he says this, may the Lord do so to me and more also. David, let that not come upon you, but let it come upon me. David took on David's risk of death. Jonathan knew exactly what he was doing. Because right in the verse after that, he says, if I'm still alive after all of this. He's counting the costs. He realizes, when I say these words to David, there is a very good chance I am not going to be around. I'm not going to be alive. And ultimately, that is what happened. Jonathan did take David's place in death. Because when you get to chapter 31, Jonathan died in battle against the Philistines when it was David that should have been there commanding the troops. The exposure on the battlefield should have been David commanding those troops, but instead it was Jonathan, and Jonathan was slain in the battle. He took David's place in death. And why did Jonathan do that? This was his heart. If it pleases my father to do you harm, may the Lord do so to me and more also. We just talked about that. If I fail to inform you and send you away so that you may go into safety. This is the heart of God. He always wants to keep us safe. This is what was so unique about Jesus is that everywhere he went, he made people feel safe. He made people feel protected. And one of the most radical things that Jesus did and modeled for us was the way he related to women and how he made women feel so safe. The woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery, the woman pouring perfume over her feet. Over and over again, God shows his tenderness and his desire to protect us. But that desire and that need is not just a female desire. All of us need that sense of safety. If you're a little kid and you're growing up and your home life is not good and you don't feel safe, you don't feel emotionally protected, that does a thing on your emotions and your heart and your psyche. And God comes to make us feel safe over and over again. And this is what Jonathan said to David. 
Don't worry. I will be your shield so that you can be safe. This is one of the jobs of moms and dads, older brothers and older sisters, is to make our family and our siblings feel safe. What a heart that Jonathan had for David. And this is exactly the ministry that Jesus expresses towards us. He died in our place so that we could be safe. Safe from what? Safe from sin. Safe from the power of sin. Safe from the consequences of sin. The Bible says that the wages of sin are death. If we continue in our ways, we will die, not just physically, not just go into the dust or the dirt. We will die forever. We will be separated from God forever. That's the ultimate lack of safety is your eternal future. And yet Jesus died in our place so that we can be safe. It's the greatest feeling to be able to go home, have a nice meal, maybe sit in front of the TV, enjoy a fireplace. Why is our home such a refuge? Because it's where we feel safe. That's why when a burglar comes into your house or someone breaks in, you feel so violated because that's your sanctuary of safety. When I was in graduate school, I lived in one of the worst neighborhoods in Minneapolis because I had to find a place that had low rent. And the place that we ended up getting, my roommate and I was in this place that was the most crime-ridden neighborhood. And there were several times that our house was broken into and it felt so sickening to think that someone could just break into your place. But God makes us feel safe. He goes to prepare for us a place in heaven so that we will dwell in peace and joy. And all these things were modeled by Jonathan to David. Do you see why Jonathan is the hero in this friendship with David? He put everything on the line for David and paid the ultimate price. When David heard the news of Jonathan's death, this is what David said in 2 Samuel chapter 1. I'm distressed for you, my brother Jonathan, you have been a close friend to me. Your love for me was more wonderful than the love of women. What a turn of phrase. Are you kidding me? Your friendship and your love was more wonderful than the love of women? The power and the influence that women have over men the things that they will do for the love of a woman, the things that will, they will do for physical pleasure or physical companionship. God designed man to have that strong inner drive to be with a companion, to be with a woman. On the negative side, you think about all the things that men do and to have a relationship with a woman, how they'll throw their life away just because they want to be with a certain woman. I don't know because of it's COVID or what, but I've just been reading all these stories of men that just like throwing their life away and leaving their wives and leaving their families and leaving their children to be with some other woman. That's the kind of influence that they have over men. We want their love. We want their affection. And here, Jonathan says, David says, Jonathan, your love was more wonderful than the love of women. That's how powerful 
this covenant was. It exceeded the love of women. Now, David's statement here was not some weird, eros, romantic notion between two guys. This verse has been twisted and used wrongly in so many ways. And it's not talking about some kind of female thing that was going on. Rather, it was like a band of brothers in which one brother dies for another in battle. Pure, agape, sacrificial care. The kind that led Jesus to die on the cross. I hope you can see how Jonathan's Christ-like ministry expressed itself in this friendship. And here's where the Bible speaks to us this morning. Will you be Christ-like to your friends like Jonathan was for David? Will you be a constant encourager? Be in the trenches. Give of your help and resources. Will you be a tower that they can run to? Will you serve, protect, and make your friends look good in front of the masses and help them come into their destiny? even if it means you sacrificing of yourself? Will you take up their side and stick up for them, even if it means taking an arrow for them? I think one of the most inspiring presentations that we're going to see in heaven is when Jonathan is called by Jesus. Jonathan, please come forward to receive your reward. Why? Because he was so pivotal to David's ministry. Without Jonathan, there would be no David. Without Jonathan, there would be no kingly standard. Without Jonathan, there would be no book of Psalms. There would be no tent of David. Jonathan was so pivotal, and he has a massive reward. And you will too, if you take on his ministry. You too will have your name called by God. And like Jonathan, we make our friends king in life when we minister to them like Jesus. Lord, we thank you this morning for this beautiful portrayal of Jonathan that you've given to us. We thank you for how it's rich with meaning, how there are so many things, God, that foreshadowed what you would do for us. And God, we're grateful beyond words how you are a Jonathan to us. But in turn, Lord, you're asking of us to be Jonathan to our friends. Lord, not to be self-absorbed or self-centered or to be unavailable or to be whining that God would send Jonathan into our lives when you're calling us to be Jonathan to someone else. Quicken us today, Lord. Help us to search our hearts and to evaluate our friendships and help us to become a better friend, a friend like Jonathan. We thank you now. We thank you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. I hope you have a great week. I hope you bless a friend. I am very excited to share and get started with our midweek service. And um, just as a, a peek uh, into what I'm going to be talking about, we're going to be talking about Jesus' midweek service. So um, 
It's going to be fun. So we'll see you online midweek. Blessings.